How many Facebook friends you got? Let's have a little competition. <laughs> Jeremy's got zero. <laughs> uh, anybody got over 500? 1,000? <laughs> anybody know they got over 1,000? You got 1,000? Oh, wow. How many do you actually have? 1,400? 1,014? Wow. But you don't hear from them all because they got their logarithms, right? Uh, I read that if Facebook was a country, it would be the seventh largest country in the world. So you've got, a, you've got an infinite possibility as far as friendships that you could uh, gain out of Facebook. But Facebook is just perfect, isn't it? Because you can have as many friends as you possibly could have. But it also allows you to maintain that human default that all of us have to isolate. You go all the way back to the garden. We know that without clothes on, we're naked. And with that comes some shame that Adam and Eve started on all of us. And so we got this default that we're going to draw back to some degree, every one of us, just to be by ourselves and away from others and even away from God because of all of that. So Facebook's perfect. Get your friends, get your relationships, but yet stick to yourself and isolate. Put your best step forward, your best pictures. You can control the conversation and the, and the pictures and all that you put out there and yet hide behind the safety of just being in your home and allowing yourself the default of isolation. We don't have to violate those comfort zones that we have. We were made for relationships. But our default is to isolate for some reason. I read a study not too long ago about life longevity, the two most significant effectors of your life length, the study shows, was number one, smoking, number two, friendships. Friendships. In the book of Acts, we read about this beautiful picture of the church where everything, everybody had everything in common and everybody was there and they broke bread together, they ate, the fellowship was magnificent. But as always, this trend to isolate began to kind of work into that good, solid group of people. But you can imagine, it was hard to be in that group. There was a lot of persecution. There was a lot of challenges. And some of the folks within the group weren't completely up to all of the challenges. It was too hard. And maybe some of the people who were all in would look down on the ones that couldn't quite muster up the courage. And so all of that stuff began. And so... I won't come anymore. I'll stop coming. It's too hard. People are going to judge me. We got this horrible human default, don't we? So we get down to the Hebrew writer in chapter 10. He says, let's not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And let's reverse that. He's challenging everybody. No, stick with the group. And then he's challenged the ones that are in the group. You got to be the encourager. 
You've got to understand where people are at so that you can be an encourager and to be an effective one to meet people where their needs are. The problem is in church, this stuff is easy to fake, just like Facebook. We ought to call it fake book, shouldn't we? It's a better name, I think, probably. All this stuff is easy to fake, fake smiles, all of that kind of stuff. We can even act differently here on Sunday for an hour, put our best step forward, not have to break those comfort zones that we're so used to. I don't know if you've ever read the book, The Contagious Christian, but uh, in that book, it talks about being other-centered and outreach-oriented. And uh, in that book, we are challenged and called to be dispensers of grace. And one of the ways that it does that, or it challenges us or encourages us to do that, is to have a Matthew party. And that comes from the story of Matthew. I'll get to it in a second, but Matthew was a tax collector. You know, you know the, the deal on that. He sold himself out to Rome to collect money from his own people so that he could establish some wealth in his own life. As you can imagine, the people didn't like that at all. You sold yourself out of Rome so you could take advantage of us. We don't like you. They would label them sinners, tax collectors, kicked out of the synagogue, kicked out of regular life, all of that stuff that you probably already know. But maybe some things that you don't know that I got from smarter people than me. Matthew, we're going to read here in a second, set up his booth on the road. That means that Matthew was probably a lower level tax collector. So he would set up shop on the road and he would make it so that you couldn't pass the road until your name was checked off that you'd already paid or that you would pay now. You just want to get where you're going, right? Then you got to do this. Uh, so he would set up on the road and he would collect and he would take what he collected and shave off some of that and give it to the chief tax collector. So we know that Matthew was kind of a lower level one, but still probably pretty wealthy. And we know that he had been outcasted and all of those things. And you know how much anger would ensue with all of the people as they passed by Matthew and everyone like Matthew and had to pay the tax before they could go on. How well you like the IRS? It almost seems like line one, what was your income last year? Line two, send in that amount, you know? It's so much going out. I just hate it. Well, you can imagine it's the same thing for Matthew. Now we have an, an actual person that we can throw all of our frustration, anger on and take it out on him. So as people pass by Matthew's booth on the road, do you think they say, hey man, how's it going? Nice day out today, huh? They hated the guy. They hated the guy. They'd lay their head down on the pillow hating that guy and hating his ilk through and through. Bet you a buck, you got some people that you hate too probably over-the-top hatred for some wounded reason of shame that you have on the inside. I don't know, just saying. <laughs> All right, so Jesus approaches Matthew differently than everybody else. So let's go there now. Chapter 9 of Matthew, this very guy. Listen. To all the little details of the story, as Jesus went up from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. 
Follow me, he told them. Him and Matthew got up and followed him. I wish there were, I'm sure there was a little more to the conversation than that. I wish we knew of that. Verse 10, listen to this. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors of the same ilk and sinners, in quotes, came and ate with him and his disciples. This is the Matthew party. It takes a lot of guts. In that day to have a Matthew party, Jesus is going against all of the norms. Jesus is going to get talked about just like Virgil mentioned. And so Jesus had to get around that. And he, he told the, the parable of the sheep. Hey, idiots, you lose a sheep, you go out and try to find him, don't you? It's the same thing. How much more a person who's been lost. But all the people don't get it. The religious rulers don't get it. The people, the church people don't get it. But Jesus did. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But here, I want you to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. All of your religious ritual, that's the sacrifice, where you take the sheep, where you get the one without blemish, where you go through all of the motions, the hands-on, tangible stuff. I don't care so much about that stuff. I want mercy, the non-tangible, the hard stuff, the dig deep into your heart and see if you got the mustard and the courage to do it. That's what he wants. That's what he looks for. For I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners. I've come to call the sinners. I've come to go and pursue the people that everybody else is rejecting. How backwards do we have this? So this is all of his teaching. And these are all of his actions. He went and ate in the home of the people who weren't even to be touched. It's a Matthew party. And look at all. There's... All kinds of other people that came to the party as well. Other sinners, other tax collectors. And Jesus became contagious in this way. And so, Matthew writes his gospel, includes his own story. And Matthew, of the four gospels, is the most Jewish or Hebrew in nature. What in the world does that mean? It means he includes about Jesus so many of the things... So many of the fulfillments of the whole Old Testament and all of that Jewish culture and Jesus being the lamb and all of those things. He's the most Jewish of the four. And so from that, we can piece this picture together that this tax collector, Matthew, went after riches. You're right. That's not a good, healthy thing to do. He went after riches so much that he sold his soul and his heart And he sold his passion, his true passion, which was the Jewish fulfillment of all of those things. He sold all of that. He gave away his heart for the riches of being a tax collector. He regretted that. And Jesus being the only one there to see down into his heart and say, I want to rescue him. Do you have that? Can you see into people's hearts like that? Or do you even want to? 
Can you assess them and rescue them and be a part of bringing them back to God and to their heart? Every one of us has compromised our heart and we got rescued, like Virgil said. The shepherd came after us at one time or another, found us, and now he just wants us to do the same and help him do that and be a part of that mission. In Luke 13, Virgil wrote, read from Luke earlier, at that time some Pharisees came to Jesus and they said to him, you got to leave this place, go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. <laughs> That's a total lie. There's a little bit of a hint of truth there. Herod wanted to grab a hold of Jesus. But the Pharisees were total liars. They wanted him out of there because he's starting to redeem people that in their estimation were not redeemable. And should be outcasted. Whenever I take the risk to do this and step out in faith for God's kingdom, I got to understand that I'm not alone, even though I'm alone. God's with me, it's not just me. Matthew shows us that this is a hard thing to do, but if I can just make friends, bring those friends, God will help me bring them back to a relationship with Him. What keeps me from pointing people to Jesus? The answer is simply just spiritual maturity. The Pharisees didn't see anything wrong with their viewpoint of these sinners. But Jesus, the most spiritually mature man of the time and of earth, was an absolute magnet to these sinners. Sitting in my office this past week and this kind of dawned on me, I'm in charge of doing the mental health assessment for every client that we have come in. And so I I run them through an assessment and then I have to give them a score out of a hundred because on this assessment, I have to give them a number for their global assessment of functionality. Yeah. (laughs) And I get that global assessment of functionality from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Yeah. The DSM. The best book ever written by people that can't even agree with themselves and by people that are as stale as you could imagine a person could be. But they're pretty smart. So they put together the book, right? And we have to use the book to assess these people. So this is... It's, it's divided up into mood disorders, personality disorders. And then the fifth one is that you come to this point where you give them this global number on how well all of these disorders negatively affect their life. And so the lower the number out of 100, the more negative effect all of, their, uh, all of these challenges have on their life. Well, the fourth section on there that we measure is all of these kind of things. Any kind of economic barriers that the person might have. Any kind of support group. In other words, family, parents, loved ones. Do they have challenges with that support group? In other words, is their family a wreck or dysfunctional? How much effect does that have on them? Also, their environment, the house that they live in, the town that they live in, the environment that this person has grown up in or is growing up in, all of these things affect 
I've simply stated, good environment, good family, bad environment, bad family, bad finances, good finances, all of these things play into a person. And I'm sitting here thinking as I'm doing this with one of the clients, wow, here is this stale book, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's about that thick with all the criteria. Here's this book that assesses all of these barriers that people can go through. And then it stops. No, there's some treatment stuff that's given in there. And I just think to myself, where is the church that we have instead of a global assessment of functionality, we need to have an eternal assessment of joy. How can you and I be better assessors of people's hearts? How can, you, how can you and I recognize the environment and the financial barriers that people have? And can our hearts go out to them? Or do we look down our nose at them? You see, we can be as stale as that thick manual. We can let that Phariseeism work its way in and it'll stay, friend. All right, so how do we do this? How can we do this better? I was just going to close today with a couple of stories from the scripture. You know some of these, but we'll, we'll apply them to kind of what our topic is today. I'm going to read from uh, Mark chapter 5 here. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. And one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there, and seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. All right, this is Jairus. He's the synagogue ruler. He probably had a lot of respect, but each person in their home probably looked down a little bit upon him because he was super righteous, probably more righteous than me. He had more wealth than me, more standing than me. And you know how people are, right? So this is Jairus. And so the disciples are probably salivating on this one. Ooh, Jairus, a man of standing. We help him out. That's going to make the headlines. We'll be along on the headlines. Also, this is a man of standing. We bring his daughter back. There's a little leverage we could maybe use there somehow. We can get some standing and some prominence ourselves. So Jesus goes. The next verse says a large crowd followed. This is big news. And pressed around him. And a woman who was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. I don't even feel good enough to go talk to the guy. I'm just going to sneak up and touch the bottom of his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped. She felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Yay, great, great story, right? At once, Jesus realized that people had, power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? I come on, Jesus. There's a crowd here. They're pressing in on you. There, everybody's touching you. But Jesus had sensed power had gone out of him. 
kept looking around, kept wasting time for Jairus' daughter. Jairus' daughter, the synagogue ruler, an old woman that was bent over with bleeding for 12 years. Who do you give your weight and time to? The disciples were like, come on, what are you wasting time for? Jairus, jeez, come on, what is this? But not Jesus. He kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembled with fear, told him the whole truth. Told him, I just thought if I could just touch your clothes, I didn't want to bother you, Jesus. If I could just touch the hem of your cloak, that would be all. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Great story. Jesus, the seeker of seekers. People don't exhibit that seeking like this woman did all the time. And that's why it's your and my job to see their heart and not the exterior. Because they might be a seeker in the quiet of their heart, but on the outside, shame. We got to see past the shame and go to the heart. Well, all that wasted a bunch of time. While Jesus was still speaking to that woman... Some men came from the house of Jairus. This is verse 35. The synagogue ruler, your daughter's dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. This is what they used to do. They would hire people to come and wail at their funerals. He went in and he said to them, what's all the commotion and waiting, wailing about? The child's not dead, but only asleep. But they laughed at him. Do you get the feeling that everybody laughed at Jesus? Do you get the feeling that everybody talked, whispered behind Jesus' back because of the people he hung around with and the places that he went? And if you're hearing me say right now, well, okay, yeah, the pastor's saying that we need to go into the houses of the poor and the, that and that and so forth. Matthew was rich. You have your co-workers that aren't in poverty, that are full of shame as well. And we just got to find them and see their hearts that are seeking. They laughed at him. And after he put them all out, listen to the details, He took the child's father, Jairus, and mother, and the disciples who were with him, there's three of them, and went in there where the child was. He took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. When I was in Israel, we traveled around Jerusalem, and Jerusalem's not overly Christian by any means. You've got the Church of the Holy Sepulchre that's kind of right there in the, the stages of the cross. But there's not a whole lot of Christians that are in Jerusalem, mostly Muslim, mostly Jewish. But we came to this spot where we got some ice cream. I still remember the ice cream. But I also remember that there was a granite sign there that said, Talitha Kum. And my archaeology professor, who knew Hebrew and Greek, 
said, boy, that is strange that that would be there. And I'm like, well, what does it mean? And he rehearsed the story. This is Jesus went into the house of Jairus because his daughter had dead. And he went up to the daughter and said, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. It's also interesting that Peter remembers this. And Peter and Mark were buddies. And so when Mark interviews Peter for his gospel, Peter, I think, said to him, you make sure you write Talitha Kum in there. You read this story in your Bible. You read it all in English except for the Talitha Kum, the Greek. It is there. It's almost as if Peter wanted us to realize, or it's almost as if Peter wanted to recall that memory. I will never forget hearing those words come out of Jesus' mouth. Talitha Kum. I was right there. I saw that dead girl. And she just caught up. Talitha Kum. They were completely astonished. That's why we read about this story later. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Don't let anybody know about this. Jesus isn't worried about headlines. He just wanted to raise a little girl. Okay. Now, how can we do this? We've got to be seekers of seekers like Jesus. But this isn't as hard as what it would seem. Here's a story in Acts that I want to sum up. In Joppa, that's Tel Aviv, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated is Dorcas. I'd have went with the Tabitha, right? I'd have stayed with that one. (laughs) She was always doing good and helping the poor. She's a great gal. About that time, she became sick and she died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. An upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa. It's a town. So when the disciples heard that Peter was at Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went to them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs into the room. All of the widows stood around, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Now, Peter, I think, begins to say, boy, I remember a situation like this. And it begins to dawn on him that maybe I could do this. And so he just did it exactly like Jesus. He sent them all out of the room. He got down on his knees and prayed. And turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. Instead of saying Talitha Kum, he said Tabitha Kum. One letter difference. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand, helped her to her feet, then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. And this became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Here's my point in all of this. Peter, when he got down on his knees and prayed, just had to be, God, I don't know how, I know how to do this. But I feel this urging just to follow the steps that Jesus did. It seems like kind of this ready-made, almost like the day Jesus did it. And even the words, Talitha Kum, that I remember so much, Tabitha Kum, it's all just right there. So you see, friends, Peter really is kind of just reading the directions right off the box. 
He doesn't know what he's doing. He's just doing. He's taken the situation presented to him. He's taken what he has seen and what he's known. And he's just trying his best. You can do that. I can do that. We can read the directions right off the box. And even if we don't do it right, we got God working beside us. We got God creating those scenarios and situations where we can do this. Only this remains. Are we ready? And by that I mean, are our hearts seeking those who are seekers like Jesus? Are we ready to look at hearts? Are we ready to stop judging the exterior faces that people put on and the exterior behaviors that can be annoying? Are we stop, ready to stop being judgmental and go after the ones that are lost? That's the question today. And that's the question that I want to leave you with. Are we ready? Are we ready? If Jesus were to come in here today, he would be the same. He would do the same. Would it make us feel uncomfortable? Would it be too overwhelming or bearing? Would it? Would we like the Pharisees say, hey, you need to go somewhere else because, uh, you know, people aren't going to like what you're doing here. When maybe it's, we don't like what he's doing here. Again, it's, it's not about going out to the houses of the poor, although that is included. It is seeking those who, wanna, who are seeking themselves. But it's so difficult to see that because people don't present the image that they are seekers until they find themselves at the bottom of life. And, you know, then we might be okay and be ready, but can we just be friends Matthew was fine, bills paid, roof over his head. Jesus was a friend. Matthew invited all of his friends. Safe to say, we got some work to do on our hearts. I just pray that this week, as you're reading your statistical and diagnostical, I can't even remember what it's called. Think about that. And let your heart go out to those who've lost theirs. Let's pray. Father, what a perception, perception switch that is required to come and seek and save the lost. To go after the sick instead of the healthy. Lord, I pray that our hearts can have that perception switch. And that you'd find us faithful servants in your mission. Lord, you've come out to rescue us, not to have any, rela- any leverage on us or for us to pay you back. You just did it out of your love. Only you just ask for us to go out and do likewise, to go out and to feed your sheep. Lord, you've redeemed so that we can redeem. And I just pray that we don't lose sight of that. In your name we pray, amen.